Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No mai haramai kito tata au hurihuri. Hello and welcome to our changing world. Ko kiakin kanan te nei. Understanding earthquakes is tricky. They don't happen very often, they occur with no warning, and most of what makes earthquakes tick actually happens way underground, out of sight. So geologists and geophysicists have to be like detectives, combing the ground for little clues that they can piece together to make a bigger picture. And so they're experts at reading the landscape and piecing together its history, skilled in using delicate equipment that can make tiny measurements on a grand scale. This week, long-time Our Changing World presenter Alison Balance is back with us with a tale of finding faults and eavesdropping on earthquakes. I root for the underdog. When I did my PhD, I worked on the ugly fault rocks on the Alpine Fault because no one else had liked them enough to care about them. And so then when I uh, came back to New Zealand and started my lectureship, I thought, well, everyone says grey wacky is ugly too, but I see beauty in it. So I've turned myself into sort of a marketer for grey wacky because there's heaps of interesting stuff in the, happening in these rocks that no one's cared enough about to describe in the past. This is grey wacky fan Carolyn Bolton. She's a structural geologist at Victoria University of Wellington and she sees things in rocks that most of us would never notice, including finding beauty in grey wacky, which is a common, rather ordinary grey rock that most geologists would regard as somewhat dull. So why does Carolyn like grey wacky quite so much? I care about it because grey wacky is a huge part of our country. It is the most dominant rock type in the entire uh, country except for sort of down in Otago, where the grey wacky has been heated up and put under pressure and turned into schist. But that schist was grey wacky once uh, as well. So the grey wacky is sort of the backbone of our country. And so I, I care about it just because of its history and its importance to our country. And I care about it because it has aspects to it that affect how our earthquakes happen in New Zealand. And it affects how our earthquakes are maybe sometimes a little bit different than earthquakes in other parts of the world. Oh, right. So it's the, the underlying rocks that then determine how the earthquake might unfold. Absolutely. We have seen recently in the 2010 Darfield earthquake and the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake that our earthquakes involve uh, often many faults. Uh, 
uh, up to 22 in the Kaikoura earthquake. And that's because the gray wacky is, is tortured. There's lots of pre-existing breaks and fractures in it. So once an earthquake gets started, all those fractures start to join in for the fun. It's like having a house party. Once one thing fractures, all the other fractures that are existing in the gray wacky can decide to join in. And that's part of the, what I think is fascinating about it. As you may have gathered, Carolyn's passion is earthquakes and faults, which is why I've joined her in Upper Hutt, right next to the Hutt River. I've brought you here to a really interesting uh, exposure of the Wellington Fault Zone in the Hutt River at Poets Park. Some big floods last winter cleaned off a spectacular outcrop of the crushed rocks that occur inside the Fault Zone. So tell me about the Wellington Fault. The Wellington Fault is a very large structure that runs straight through our nation's capital and it's the fastest slipping fault zone in the Wellington region. So how do you know that we're looking at fault rocks? I know we're looking at fault rocks because the rocks here are have been crushed and they've been changed by the dramatic processes that happen during earthquakes on faults. So what are those processes? Temperature? Pressure? In the near surface where we are here, just a lot of crushing, grinding and breaking. Down a little bit deeper, we also see that fluids move through fault zones uh, during earthquakes. So if you look at the rocks here, you see a lot of white streaks or zebra stripes that are filled with minerals. And those minerals are carried into the fault by fluids migrating along it before, during and after earthquakes. And you can see that the sandstone has lots of fractures in it. So it's all broken up. It kind of looks like a jigsaw puzzle now. You can see that there are all these pieces of sandstone that have been uh, separated by, by cracks. But, and you also see a sort of a brown rock that looks more squiggly. That's the uh, old mudstone layer. Tor Torlaeus Greywacky starts out as nice like a deck of cards, layers of sandstone and mudstone laid down on the margin of Gondwana, uh, you know, a couple hundred million years ago. But once they start getting involved and in, in being deformed, the mudstone is very weak and incompetent. It's like Play-Doh a little bit. And the sandstone is, is much stronger. It's, it's quite competent. And so the mudstone starts to, to deform and become quite irregular. And uh, it's squishing around the, the sandstone as, as deformation takes place. We are standing on the damage zone, which runs alongside the fault proper. But it's the actual fault that Carolyn has brought me here to see, thanks to those floods last winter, which cleared away the thick gravels on top. All right, let's go find the slipping zone. Heading to the river. <laughs> Alison, can you see how the rocks are, are even more crushed up here than where we started? Yep. They're a different colour and their texture's quite different. Before it looked like a jigsaw puzzle. The yeah. fractures, you could see all the pieces could fit together. Mm. But here, there's so many fractures and they've broken things up to such a fine grain size, it's no longer like a puzzle. So this is a, a process that is associated with faulting in the upper part of, of a fault zone. And it's a process that involves grinding and wearing away of the rocks and lots of brittle fracturing. 
And so what we see here is we have a very sharp plane. That is a, a localized a fault or feature within this zone. And adjacent to that very sharp plane, there is a, a lot of crushing and grinding that's happened, as well as uh, fluids moving it that have changed the colors of the rocks. So we can say here that there's been a lot of intense deformation, maybe some frictional heating, maybe some fluid migration uh, that's happened on this particular part of the fault zone. So that plane that we're looking at, that's actually where the movement would occur? That would be where it was sliding? Yeah, let's have a look. Don't take my word for it. Do you see here? If we look up close, there's sort of the grains of sand or the, the very fine-grained fractured rocks next to the plane. But if you look right inside the plane, you can't even see grains. That's been crushed up so fine. Oh, that's, that's like really fine mud. Yeah, this is called fault gouge. It's so fine-grained that you, you can't even see the grains anymore. It's like mud. And this, this mud is what actually lubricates the fault zone. If it was wet and you put it between your fingers, it would be very slippery like pottery clay. And you can see that it snakes all the way up and along the outcrop. This is where the main slip happens in this fault gouge. And what I do is I take pieces of this fault gouge and I take it into the laboratory and I simulate earthquakes in it so that I can see how strong it is and how it behaves when there's an earthquake. Oh, so tell me a little bit more about that lab simulation. What we do is we have machines in the laboratory that simulate the high temperatures and the high pressures that happen at depth in the fault zone where the earthquakes start, where we call they nucleate, and then they propagate out like, like throwing a, a pebble in, in the harbor. You see where the pebble lands, that's where like where an earthquake nucleates. And then you see the waves radiate out from where the pebble lands. That's how earthquakes propagate. They radiate out from that nucleation point like waves along the fault plane. And those waves enable the fault or sort of unlock it and enable it to start slipping. And how, how it goes from being stuck to slipping is really fundamentally wrapped up in how it radiates that energy and it's that radiated energy and those waves that affect us here on the earth's surface and our buildings and our roads and our houses. So by understanding a bit more about this lubricant, about what, what's making the faults slip, that's helping build a better picture of how and why earthquakes happen? Absolutely. When we look at these rocks in our sophisticated machines at high temperatures and pressures, we see that as it goes up in temperature in particular, the rocks become more and more unstable. They become more and more likely to slip, to nucleate an earthquake. And putting constraints on the conditions where those earthquakes are likely to nucleate and where the rocks are the most unstable helps us to create models of earthquake processes and helps us to understand the types of waves and the frequency of waves that are generated by the faults in, in an earthquake. Is it going to help understand why some parts of faults don't slip? 
It does actually. We're standing on a gray wacky fault, which again, like I said, I'm a big fan of underdogs. So I, I want to market gray wacky as being an interesting rock. But I also work on subduction zone, the Hikarangi subduction zone offshore. And in the northern Hikarangi around Gisborne, we see that there are slow slip events. They're like earthquakes, but they don't radiate any damaging waves. They occur over weeks uh, up in Gisborne, and they are equivalent to a large magnitude earthquake, but no one ever feels them. And that's because what we see is when we do experiments on rocks that we think are in the fault zone up there, we see that they're not unstable. They tend to slip very stably in the lab. And so we can put numbers on that and then use those numbers in, in models that help describe the slow slip events. So you can end up with a numerical model that goes, this, this describes a fast slipping area versus this describes a slow slipping area. That's right. What we want is numbers that describe faults that undergo fast slip versus faults that undergo slow slip because that helps us to understand the type of hazard associated with those faults. If everything undergo, underwent all of its deformation and slow slip events, then we would have no damaging earthquakes and we would not need to do any seismic reinforcing. And that would be, to me, that would be a utopia when we didn't have to live with the damaging effects of earthquakes. But unfortunately, rocks like gray wacky, they tend to slip unstably. And so we have to prepare for earthquakes in gray wacky in a different way to the way we prepare for earthquakes around Gisborne and the subduction zone interface. The more I hear about faults, the more fascinating they are. I like to think of faults as being really clever. They, they do lots of things that make their life easier. Their role in life is to relieve stress and to allow slip to happen. And that slip has to happen because we're at a plate boundary. The Pacific plate is running into the Australian plate and we just happen to be stuck in the middle of that. And so what the faults do is they, they allow that plate boundary collision to happen. That's their, their job. And like any of us, they want to make their job as easy as possible. They don't want to work any harder than they have to. And so what they do is that they grind stuff up and it makes it a finer grain and it, and it allows uh, fluids to get in and turn those grains into clays. That makes the fault slipperier and it makes it easier to move. Another thing that faults do is they get straighter. The longer and the more slip they happen on them, the more earthquakes have happened on them, the straighter they are, so that makes slipping easier. Anytime you have to go over bumps or a rough surface, or like say you're going down the gravel road versus State Highway 2 out there, faults don't want to be gravel roads. They don't want to be bumpy and rough. They want to be smooth, straight structures that allow slip to happen easily. That's why the Alpine Fault, when you look at you know, the Southern Alps, it's just such a straight line down the backbone of the Southern Alps. It's just such a straight, efficient structure that is allowing all of that motion between the Pacific Plate and the Australian Plate to happen. Whereas in the Kaikoura earthquake, in that gray wacky, the faults were all like badly placed dominoes. It was an immature fault zone. Life is still a little bit hard for those faults. They have very uh, complicated earthquakes because they haven't been slipping as much as the Alpine Fault.
Rivers are also smart, but lazy. The river is just following the fault here because the fault crushes up the rocks, makes it easier to erode. It's no mistake that the Hutt River actually hugs the west side of the Hutt Valley. It hugs that west side because it's following the fault because it's the most easily eroded uh, a part of the Hutt Valley. So when you drive through a landscape, are you constantly looking for faults? Oh yeah, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to look at the landscape and try to see what's been happening there, see, see the faults, see the landslides. The interaction between geology and the landscape is, I don't know, you never get bored once you start seeing what's going on there. But what's even more fascinating to me is imagining what's happening down deep where we can't see them. Imagining what's happening down at the depths where the earthquakes nucleate. That in these recent earthquakes in, uh, in, in Canterbury and in Marlborough, the earthquakes nucleated at about 10 or 15 kilometers depth. So down there, it's much hotter and there's a lot more pressure. So imagining what's happening at those depths, it just adds to the fun. Carolyn is not the only one trying to visualise what lies under our feet in terms of faults and earthquake potential and processes. Her Victoria University of Wellington colleague Martha Savage adds physics to geology. Geophysics is the physics of the earth. So geologists usually study what they can see at the surface and we try to use techniques to study beneath the surface and also to understand the processes involved in, say, earthquake faulting and volcanic eruptions and and basically volcanic processes, um, how you get the magma coming up to the surface and um, things like that. One of the methods that geophysicists such as Martha use to visualise what lies beneath the ground is seismic noise. Noise, after all, is just vibrations. And seismic noise is the Earth vibrating in response to all sorts of things, including earthquakes and Martha's neighbour who's doing a bit of floor sanding while we talk. Geologists and geophysicists use seismographs or seismometers to detect this noise, and there is now quite a network of these positioned all around the country. Now, I know it's not geology, but in early 2020, Martha and some other researchers used this sensitive detecting equipment to see what impact a COVID lockdown would have on global seismic noise. One of the things that's been really interesting in the last 15 years or so is people have started looking more at seismic noise. So what that means is... The seismographs collect data all the time from everything that moves around them, that makes a movement in the earth. So there will be noise from natural sources, such as the oceans um, hitting the shoreline. And that surprisingly goes through much of even the continental areas. Um, And New Zealand's got a a very nice big (laughs) signal from those noise sources, from the waves that are interacting with the coastline and other waves. There's also you know, wind and trees moving and people as well. And so, you know, if your seismograph is in a city, you'll get a lot of noise from the um, cars moving by and trucks. So what happened last year, um, I was one of about 70 authors who worked on this from around the world. 
And what everybody noticed was that during the lockdown, the signals of the noise dropped um, dramatically. And, of course, that was because people weren't moving around. So it was all the what they call the cultural noise from people's movements. So there's this nice little program that this one, the, the first author, um, Thomas Lecoq, had um, designed to look at noise amplitudes. And so we all around the world, we would did this on our own um, seismic network. So I was working and also another colleague up in University of Auckland, Casper Van Wyck, um, so looked at the signals, particularly in Auckland and Wellington. And the noise, of course, went down just like everybody else. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the Botanic Gardens, I, we had a site in the Botanic Gardens, and, and actually the, the noise changed, the, the difference between Saturday and Sunday and, and the work days changed as well during the, the lockdown. And, and we had more noise after a certain time and um, slightly more noise, I think, from the people walking um, during some of the Sunday times because um, there wasn't as much else to do. So people would go for a walk in the Botanic Gardens. So... Um, that was interesting. Martha and colleagues have been developing some sophisticated methods that use the background seismic noise collected by the nationwide network of seismic detectors in new ways. These methods can help determine the structure of the earth, and they might also be useful in future for developing earthquake detection and early warning systems. People have realised that the noise can be used as a signal. So if you look at um, a lot of noise traveling around between seismic stations, then if you do something called a cross-correlation where you look at the two stations and you look at the records from the two stations and compare them, then you can see um, the ones that are traveling between the two stations add up positively every time you add these signals together. And so you can see the wave propagating between the two stations, even though it's it's very, very small in, in the noise, but because you just keep adding them all together, those ones um, will increase in amplitude. And so you'll see this signal traveling between the two stations. And that allows you to then use that, we call it a surface wave, most of the time it's a surface wave, um, and that travels along and it it's senses the material beneath um, beneath its path and so it can tell you what the velocity structure is or how, how the um, seismic waves, how fast they can travel, um, depends on the kind of rocks that are there. And so you can use that to understand the structure of the Earth. And that's been very helpful because previously the way to get these ones were to either set off an, an explosion or air gun sources sometimes or just to get earthquakes. Um, but it's, of course, quite expensive and a little bit intrusive to, to do those setting off your own signals. Whereas now that we can do this, we can get a lot of information just from putting out an array of stations anywhere on Earth. Um, even if there's no earthquakes around, they can still record that noise and understand, we can learn what the structure is beneath the, those regions. So it's been very, um, very useful for that. And, and another thing that's been useful for is to look at um, time variations in signals. So if you have the two stations and something happens um, between them, say, um, if an earthquake, for instance, happens, then that can cause the ground to shake and actually change the velocity of the ground movement a little bit. So it makes it a little harder for the waves to travel across this kind of broken ground. And that then makes it a little slower. So you can actually use this signal now to, to follow how this time-varying um, seismic um, velocity changes. So we see these changes of about 
you know, 0.1%. Uh, um, and we can see these. So after the Kaikoura earthquake, um, there was quite a, a big, well, a big signal in that you could see it very strongly because um, it was still only a few um, tenths of a percent. But you could see it really strongly that it was clearly different from um, the noise before and after. You can see that the time changed really sharply right at the earthquake and, and it dropped everywhere. Yeah, that's um, pretty exciting because we hope that we could use that kind of thing. There, there's a hope that it, it, perhaps if things change before the earthquake, you might be able to see it this way. Um, we've been trying to do this at, at volcanoes as well, and there's some suggestion that we might see changes because of the magma moving around a little bit will change the velocity. And we might we can see that sometimes before. It sort of adds to the signals that what one might see from the magma causing earthquakes to move. So there's another, that's another tool that we can use to try to monitor the magmatic movement under the volcanoes. But how much warning might you be able to give within the New Zealand region anyway, if you had an early warning system? Um, so for the Kaikoura earthquake, the system we're working with, called the PLUM algorithm, gave about a nine seconds warning, um, would have given. This was a retrospective, meaning we tested afterwards, we said what would have happened if we had the system in place. Um, and then we could have gotten a nine seconds warning. So that's not much time to do too much, but it's enough to do things like turn off the gas, maybe, and certainly automatic turning off of gas um, and automatic things, and, and maybe even getting underneath the table or something. One of Martha's recent projects, funded by the Earthquake Commission, involves groundwater and the way it moves in response to earthquakes. The reasons that we were so interested in this was that Conrad Weaver was looking at water records from all the various regional councils. And after the Kaikoura earthquake, many of the water stations had either increases or decreases in water level after the earthquake, which is also happened after the Christchurch earthquake and, and is a common feature. Recently, people have been looking at this in, in other areas. But it was quite interesting that they were um, getting these changes and, and the water stations. Some increased the water table and some decreased the water table. Whereas when we looked at the earthquake noise, they all decreased the velocity. So it was as if they were making more cracks. And so what we wanted to do for this new study from the EQC is to put stations right at the same spot as the water table measurements were made. So we've worked with the Wellington Regional Council to put out uh, about um, 10 seismometers now around um, one is in Petone and, and the others are in the Kapiti Coast and the Wairapa. And we put them at these same sites that some of them that had gone up and some had gone down in the water table and some had stayed the same. So we're um, we're analyzing that now. Um, it takes a while to get all the data and process it. You have to try many different parameters to try to get the best signal, and we're working on that now. But there have been other studies that have seen big changes, like in California with the droughts. They can find that the water signals are in, in sync with the seismic velocity signals, um, but other places they're out of sync. So we're interested to see here. So so far we see sometimes it look like they're in sync and sometimes it look like they're out of sync. And we need to um, really try to work harder on getting these parameters right now that we have more and more data coming in and, and then we, we can really tell 
how does the water signals in New Zealand relate to the seismic velocity and, and how does that relate to the different cracks that get made in, in the earthquakes and how does it affect the water table and is there any change before uh, the earthquakes from buildup of stress beforehand? Um, so we're looking at that kind of thing. Although Martha's work is focused on trying to better understand earthquake processes and develop possible early warning systems, Along the way, she's noticing other interesting things in the normal background seismic noise. You can see sort of cyclical increases in the seismic velocity during the winter time and decreases in the summertime. And we think those are probably related to the water table, and we want to see how, how they are related. And this, this will help us much more directly because we have the stations right at the same spots as the, as the water table measurement, so we can much more directly tell how the effects are going on. Is that a consequence of rainfall, that change? Yes, yes, the rainfall. So in the wintertime, there's more rain and more water. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the voice of Professor Martha Savage, a geophysicist at Victoria University of Wellington. And before her, we heard from her colleague, geologist Dr. Carolyn Bolton. And we also heard the familiar voice of Alison Balance, who produced this week's story. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Walken is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. Remember, you can keep up to date with our changing world by following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where there'll be photos and links related to this story but also access to our huge back catalogue of episodes, including a collection about earthquakes. And you can sign up to our monthly newsletter via the website. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. I'll be back with you next week. Kia pai, do wiki.